Okay. So um, I want to start off with the question I'm asking everybody, and I don't think it will surprise you because I put this out in print before. But what I'm asking everybody is the tech boom, the policies of the Lee administration, the job growth has had positive and negative impact on San Francisco. Mm -hmm. right? We've obviously gotten all these jobs. The city's got a lot more money in the coffers. There is, you know, mid-market has been brought to life in some ways. There's also been a downside. Right. There's been hundreds of evictions, thousands of displacements. All the nonprofits were displaced from mid-market. Right? On balance, and I know this is hard, but on balance, are we better off now than we were seven years ago? Mm. <laughs> that is a hard question. I, what I would say is this. Um, whenever... Whenever inequity grows in a city, I think that we are worse off. But of course, it's not you know, a flat statement in of itself, because as you said, there was also upsides. Right. But what I'm trying to get at is, But yeah. yes, but on an, overall, on an overall level. Overall, are we better off than we were, or are we worse when, off? When a few people become ultimately significantly richer and wealthier, and everyone else is doing worse, on balance, um, that's not a positive direction for a city. So, what, obviously, I don't know if you saw that San Francisco Magazine cover story by Gary Camilla about the tech overlords and what we can do to fight back. It's actually, he essentially says, oh, it had nothing to do with city policies. It's just the random economy that made San Francisco into this. I disagree with that. I actually think that there were city policies that Ed Lee and his administration pushed that helped encouraged the tech boom and helped encourage inequality in the city. Um, well, here's actually where I will, I will push back on that. I think more than actually any of Lee's administration to um, support and incentivize tech, I would actually say it was their reluctance to regulate tech right. that um, I think yep. really exacerbated the yep. growing income gap in our country. Mm -hmm. it's, it's actually when we are laissez-faire mm -hmm. and we step back that um, you know, you see greater inequity. Yeah. When we in this country or in the city have um, had greater equity or a larger middle class, it has been through very intentional policy making, yes. both around tax policies yeah. and around regulations on the private sector. Mm -hmm. um, when, we, when we go towards a laissez-faire model, um, capital is the winner. Right, and, and and so I, I guess maybe we were saying the same things, yeah. but more than the incentivizations, I think it was the complete lack of uh, intentional regulating on the tech industry that um, has led to what we've seen today. So, on an overall basis, I mean, what do you do? What policies do you do as mayor of San Francisco that pushes back in the other direction? Mm -hmm. So, I so I think one significant, you know, policy. Um, that we've seen work um, throughout the country and throughout our city is when we invest in public institutions and infrastructure that grow a middle class and support a working class. So whether it is our efforts um, in leading the way of making community college free for all of our residents, um, my current initiative to make childcare affordable for families, or more greatly investing in affordable housing and middle income housing and our public schools, those are the 
actual institutions which allow a middle class to grow and to support a working class. Now, the question, of course, is always how do we pay for it? And this is where I think a progressive taxation policy um, matters. Um, and in fact, you know, in this country, through much of the 20th century, we had a very progressive taxation policy. And when 80% we. 80% on high incomes. Right. And when we ask those that. Um, profit the most off of our infrastructure and off of our workers um, to invest in public institutions like public transit and public housing and public education that supported um, our working and middle class. And when we started cutting um, the tax rates on the wealthiest people and the wealthiest corporations, we had to pay for it somehow. And we paid for it by divesting from public schools, from divesting from HUD, which used to have a larger budget in the Department of Defense, and divesting from our healthcare system. And over the last 40 years, we've seen the consequences of the federal and state divestments um, in cities today like San Francisco. For example, our homelessness crisis. There which I think under this administration, not to interrupt you, but under this administration, I mean, look, the HUD budget reached its peak in around 79 and has never recovered. After yeah. Reagan cut it, Obama didn't bring it back. Right. Mm -hmm. Clinton didn't bring it right. back. The Democratic Party didn't bring it back. Yeah. So the Trump administration isn't going to bring it back. Whoever gets elected president as a Democrat, unless it's Bernie Sanders, isn't going to bring it back immediately. We're, we're going to have to do it in San Francisco. Yeah, right? I agree. So talk about some of the progressive taxation ideas you have for San Francisco. I mean, yeah. you've, you've got, well, go ahead. Well, I, so, you know, actually, Republicans and Democrats have cut HUD's budget since 1980. Um, as you said, um, in the 1970s, we hit our peak, and HUD's budget was larger than the Department of Defense. And between 1940 and 1980, just in San Francisco alone, the federal government um, built 6,000 units of subsidized low-income and middle-income housing. In fact, the government used to be in the business of building housing. And then Reagan decided, under the skies of small government and cutting taxes, that the market should take care of housing the poor, the working class, and the middle class. And 40 years later, we see the consequences of that decision. And between 1980 till now, the federal government has only built 1,000 units of publicly subsidized housing. And so um, I always tell people there's this great graph online, HUD's budget going down. And it was cut by 50% between 1980 and 2002. So Clinton was a part of actually that. Um, and then homelessness as an yeah. urban national crisis. So and then that comes to your next point, Tim, which is that what can we do at the local level to counter the divestment at the state and federal level. And this is what I say over and over again. You heard me say it during the Free City College debate, is that San Francisco is in this very unique position in the country because we are a fairly liberal city and we're a wealthy city, which means we on our own can afford to enact these dream policies that other cities can't fantasize about. I always say this, but you know, Oakland can't afford to make Laney College free. Um, Daly City can't afford to make Skyline free. We made City College Free, and we're the only city in the country that has made community college free for all of our residents. Um, and so I do think that San Francisco has a role in, um, I guess, you know, my I, I think this is our way of fighting back, is by investing in the very things that Republicans, Tea Party, and the Trump administration have been fighting over the last 40 years. So what are some of the progressive taxation um, revenue measures that I've been thinking about? One, of course, is we're doing the commercial gross receipts um, measure for June 5th. Um, commercial landlords pay one of the lowest tax rates in the country at 0.3%. To put that into context, New York City is 4 to 6%. So we are going to the voters with a 3.5% increase. We'll still be below New York City, and we'll generate about $140 million for our city. And um, Supervisor Yi and I have crafted a, a measure, Proposition C, C for Child Care, to make San Francisco's single largest investment in early childhood education ever. And um, 
85% of it will be dedicated to early childhood education. And the final 15% will be dedicated to the general fund, which we imagine will help pay for um, the minimum compensation ordinance that is San Francisco Labor Council's top priority, which is to ensure that our lowest paid city workers get a raise slightly above minimum wage. They're not even asking for a lot. They're asking yeah. for 50 cents above minimum wage. Um, and I think the city should be funding our lowest paid workers. And would workers. you do that 50% plus one? Yes, because yeah. we gathered we signatures. Gathered signatures. It, it, you know, it would get litigated, yeah. of course. Someone, you know, Harvard Jarvis, yeah. you know, because it wasn't specifically um, enumerated by the California Supreme Court. But it, we're going to win. Yeah. We're going to win that case, I, yeah. I think so. Um, Coalition on Homelessness um, is currently working with Supervisor Hilary Ronan on another gross receipts measure. And again, this is all the business taxes, yeah. right? So we know the Trump administration is about to heavily subsidize our corporate, yeah. um, our corporate uh, actors um, with a huge tax break um, over the next year. And San Francisco should be um, capturing some of that back. Um, there are a group of progressive leaders in the homeless community um, working with Supervisor Ronan on a overall gross receipts measure on all companies that make $25 million and above. Mm -hmm. And they are expecting to generate, depending on the increase, um, between 140 and $300 million for affordable housing, um, homeless services, and supportive services. And I'm hugely supporting that. Um, three, um, I have been talking about a CEO surcharge um, for the last year, mm. modeled after Portland. So Portland has assessed a fee on companies where CEOs make either 100 times more yep. than the median salary of their employee or 250 times more. Now, we've been uh, it's been complicated by the fact that the Trump administration is no longer promulgating a rule that would allow Portland to enact this ordinance right. locally. So we have been trying to find another proxy. Um, so we are looking at a surcharge on CEOs that make 100 and 250 times the average median salary of a San Francisco resident right. instead. Right. And so that we've been working on with the controller's office. That could generate 20 to $25 million um, for our city. Um, other revenue measures are not necessarily progressive taxation measures, but they would be another general obligation bond. And so I have proposed at least studying what a $1 billion geo bond um, would do for our city and how much it would cost. Uh, Santa Clara County did it last year. Um, they have actually one of the biggest um, homeless, unsheltered populations in the state, and they decide to proactively counter it with a $1 billion bond. And I think San Francisco should study the exact same thing. It's unfortunate that, you know, um, the, between 1996 and 2015, was that the year? Um, you know, San Francisco did not pass any affordable housing bonds. Yep. I remember as a community organizer, I worked on the 2002 and 2006 measure and we failed both times. And so there was a huge gap um, between the two affordable housing bonds and we're literally struggling to make up for um, and then that, that, that lost time. That, that raises taxes on property owners in San Francisco. Yes. And you'll get, feed, you'll get pushback on the west side, but the reality is anyone who owns property in San Francisco today, and I am one of them, who didn't buy their house five minutes ago can afford to pay higher taxes. I mean, really, that's the reality of it, you know? Well, um, you know, and that's the argument for rent control is that Proposition 13 is, is a subsidy to long-term property owners. What, what do you think about a vacancy tax for commercial and residential properties? So I support it. And you know, back in 2011, actually, Steve Jones asked me a lot about that post the mid-market tax yeah. exclusion. Um, we had look at uh, both a vacancy fee and a vacancy tax. Mm -hmm. And where we've been struggling, actually, is um, figuring out how to 
evaluate vacancy, um, how to work with the assessor's office on identifying um, apartments that are vacant. It's easy. And then to... It's easy, Jane. And we then, run the water department. What? We run the water department. Oh, right. The water bill. The water bill tells you whether an apartment's vacant or not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? So we, we run... All, and, and that's actually public record. Yeah. So all you have to do is check every place where the water use is one, you know, one gallon every six months. I like the proxy that you used, actually, in the study that you did, um, which was the address that they yeah. had the tax bill yeah, sent the, to. And that's another one you can yeah. use. But between all of this, we can figure out what residential I agree. Thing. I agree. We can definitely figure out a residential fix, and I support that. Commercial is a little bit harder, only in the sense if there's a downturn, do we tax property owners who truly are trying to rent out, but they yeah. can't. Um, I think that's kind of the tension on the commercial side. But on the residential side, I, I agree with you. We hear a lot of you can't do that, but I, I agree with you, Tim. I think that there's a proxy yeah. for figuring out whether it's a vacant home or not. Yeah. And it's frustrating. I mean, we don't know how many vacant homes there are right. in San Francisco. The estimates say that there could be 30,000, which is yeah. actually an extraordinary number of units. And, and, and what's also exciting is that you know Airbnb finally removed 6,000 unit yep. listings from their rules. So, you know, I hope those 6,000 units come back online yep. as residential rentals. Um, but we do have to figure out what to do with maybe the approximate 30,000 units, which would be a huge boost to our housing crisis today. Absolutely. Absolutely. In Even at market rate. In retrospect, going back and thinking about all of this stuff and what's happened to the city, was the Twitter tax break a bad idea? Was that a mistake? I... I still feel that I made the right decision in 2011 um, to author the mid-market tax exclusion. And um, when I came on the board in January, um, Gavin Newsom had already been working yeah. on the mid-market tax exclusion and already had six votes without me. And you know, I, I've been very consistent actually about being against tax breaks. This is not a new position for me. Yeah. Even before I was on the board oh, yeah. of supervisors, no, I, I did not support it. And I really struggled with uh, the decision. Um, but a couple of things I'll say, as someone that's an elected representative, um, I, in 2010 when I was running, the number one issues that I heard from residents wasn't housing, it was jobs. Mm -hmm. Um, and second, mid-market had the highest commercial vacancy rate in the city mm -hmm. at approximately 30%. So I did, I, I think I worked on a measure that became more balanced in the end and was um, much more um, targeted. Um, so the original ordinance that came to me was a full tax break um, for any company that moved to mid-market or the tenderloin um, for eight years um, or for a certain number of years. And so I think that we did a couple of things to make it a stronger, more targeted ordinance. Um, one, we reduced it from eight to six years. Um, two, we um, said that it's not a complete tax break, which is what Twitter wanted, that it was only a break on the net new jobs right. that any company created in the corridor. And then finally, um, if you look at the map, we worked to exclude any buildings that didn't have a historical did not have a historical rate of commercial vacancy. Mm -hmm. So Twitter moved into a building that had been vacant for 50 plus years, the upper levels, not the bottom floor. And um, Square and Uber moved in next door to a building that didn't have commercial vacancy. So they have to pay all of their um, payroll or gross receipts taxes. Um, so in that sense, you know, I do think we move forward with a balanced legislation now. Um, I'm still responsible for the neg negative side consequences of that decision. And so after that 
um, after the passage of that ordinance, I worked really hard on passing stronger tenant protections for residents, fighting evictions at 1049 Market, and at quote unquote illegal um, live work um, commercial spaces throughout the south of Market. Um, worked on investing in a nonprofit and arts displacement fund, and also worked to acquire um, the luggage store gallery at 1006 Market, and um, the, now the new Counterpulse building um, at 80 Turk. And these two buildings are now permanently um, affordable buildings for arts organizations for its uh, in perpetuity. Um, yeah, the, one of the hidden costs is all the displacement of nonprofits mm -hmm. who liked the cheap rents in mid-market. I know. Yeah. 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 It's, I, I will say, though, that um, you know, the mid-market tax exclusion definitely played a role in jump-starting our economy probably faster than the rest of the region. Um, but where I do agree with Gary is that some of that was going to happen regardless. I mean, the boom. It wasn't just that one. Um, yeah, no, it was, it was a combination of things. It was things, a combination. That was, that was a piece of it. You know, so were the Google buses a piece of it? Yeah. You know, and I know you've always had concerns about the Google buses. Yeah, and yeah. my position on that has been consistent since yeah. 2014. Yeah. Um, let me shift for a second. I know that you have been very outspoken against SB 827, mm -hmm. and despite the hits that you've taken in some quarters on, on that, um, I think you have been very consistent on this wherever you've gone, not mm -hmm. just the West Side, but I think you've been very consistent on this. There are two things I think that underlie 827, the philosophy that's behind that bill. And one is that growth is good. Mm -hmm. And we need to constantly grow as fast as we can. And the second is that the private market will solve our housing problems. Yes. And I'm interested in your response to those because you know part of part of the Twitter tax break was this idea that we need to bring more private sector companies into San Francisco. And of course, they ended up hiring people who didn't live in San Francisco mm -hmm. and bringing new employees from someplace else, mm -hmm. which is not really, in my mind, the best way to do economic development. Yeah, no, right. no, I think you're absolutely right about that. Our hope was that actually the hiring would happen within San Francisco. But it didn't. But you're right, it did not. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. um, number one, I mean, there used to be a group in San Francisco called San Franciscans for Reasonable Growth with Sue Hester and John Alberling and yeah. you know those folks yeah. way back when, who basically said, that's where Prop M came from. Right. The idea that the city can grow too fast, that we don't need to bring in 10, 20,000 new jobs a year because we don't have the infrastructure to handle it. And that we actually should, Prop M was about, in a sense, cutting off job growth at a certain point to say we can only handle what we can handle and it has to be more slow and reasonable so that we can keep up with the infrastructure, with the housing, and so forth. And, you know, we've actually, I, I love to hear when people say we've historically underbuilt housing in San Francisco. No, we haven't. We've actually historically built housing that's kept up with job growth until the last eight years or so, where the job growth has come so fast that nobody could build housing fast enough to keep up with it. I don't care, you know, I don't care if you get rid of all zoning in the city. It wouldn't have happened. Yeah. So I'm interested in your thoughts on that. I mean, did we grow too fast? Are we growing too fast? And is it okay mm -hmm. as a policymaker to say, we're growing too fast, we need to slow down a bit? So, you know, in 2011, 2012, I don't think anyone could have guessed that we would grow 100,000 residents. Yeah. And by the way, just to put that into context, that's like New York City growing a million people. I know. New York, New York is not prepared to grow a million people. I and I think that it is, while it's true we should have been preparing for some growth, it would have been really unrealistic um, to expect us to um, have predicted a growth of that size. Um, I do believe in growth, actually. And, and you can see it in my district. Um, I have been the queen of density and upzoning mm -hmm. in my district. And, you know, how I have gotten 40% affordable middle-income housing or 25%, whatever I've done above and beyond 
um, the law in terms of what we expect of developers has always come through conferring value to land through density and height. Right. <laughs> and I always explain that when I give a developer an extra floor or 10 extra floors, I'm giving the developer money. Money, that's right. Because that is a, an additional set of units that they kind of re either rent or sell. Yep. So if I'm gonna confer extra value to your land, then I want you to share some of that value back with us by building more affordable housing than you originally had to, or paying more in transit impact fees, or paying more in childcare school fees, or open space for pedestrian safety improvements. And that is my biggest issue with SB 87, is that um, Senator Weiner is proposing to increase height and density without asking the developers to do anything in return. It is a huge developer giveaway. Um, so that is my- property owners too. Right, landowners, land yeah, owners. exactly. Yeah. Um, actually, the landowners are the biggest winners in this they market, um, more than anyone, because um, when you look at what developers are dealing with that don't already own land, right. their single largest line item is the cost of acquiring no, land. A, this is a vast wealth transfer to landowners yeah. in San Francisco. Is Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So let's go on to the second half of this then, okay? The, there has been a philosophy in San Francisco, in a lot of quarters, that the way to build affordable housing, and possibly the only way to build enough affordable housing, is to build market rate housing. And two things will happen. Eventually, prices will come down. And number two, there's no other way to build enough affordable housing. So um, this idea that somehow we should rely on the private market to solve our housing problems, how do you respond to that? Well, I, I will say two things. It is true that we currently do re rely on the private market to help us build affordable middle-income housing because, as I said, government has gone out of the business of building housing. We used to build housing. And then when we decided that the market should take care of housing everyone, we do rely on the private market. So right now, in many of the deals that I negotiate, I am relying on developers to build more affordable housing. And so um, I do think that they are part of the solution. Um, but ultimately, what I don't agree with is the concept that building as much market rate as possible is going to make San Francisco more affordable. Building as much affordable housing as possible will make San Francisco more affordable. And one of my, you know, at least what we've seen thus far um, from the data is that building all this market rate and luxury housing, which does help cross subsidize the affordable units that are built on site or off site. Um, you know, don't necessarily house actual residents. Good. And that's a problem. Even if all the luxury market was housing our wealthiest residents as their primary home, great. But We're housing people, vacant. but a lot of them are vacant and they're investments for um, people outside of San Francisco. So it's been incredibly frustrating to me, especially in my district, to see all of these market rate luxury housing go not even housing anyone at all. What do you think about the Vancouver approach? I like it. Yeah. Um, they have heavily taxed um, outside units. They've also made it very difficult for anyone who wasn't Canadian to buy in Vancouver, I know. which I mean, has problems. We, we, yeah. can't, we can't actually do that in yeah. this country. I mean, I, 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 when I visited Copenhagen, um, the residents told me that you cannot own a home unless you live there. Yeah. I, and that's a great, yes. you know, that, that ensures that housing is actually housing someone, whether they're wealthy or poor, right? right. And, and also about three quarters of the housing in Copenhagen is social housing anyway. Yeah. Yes. Canada, it's a, a little bit different from us. Yeah. Um, so you have talked a lot about homelessness. Um, you're also talking about clean streets. I think that you would agree that the dirty streets are a symptom of the homeless problem to a great extent. Well, yeah. Uh -huh. You know, uh, Mark Leno has put out a plan to get the maybe 1,700 existing SROs to start taking renters in, but that's got its challenges. 
It's I mean, important, though. We, I, important. I think we both agree on that. Yeah. yeah. So what else? I mean, what do we do? What do you do in the first two years that you're mayor to start dealing with the homeless problem? And it's not just street homelessness, as you well know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's people who are underhoused. So our true homeless count is closer to 17,000. It's yeah. not the six or 7,000 that are on our streets right. or in our shelter on any given night. Um, there are about seven, 17,000 individual unique contacts that people have with our homeless services system. So there are many people that are very invisible. They're either sleeping in their cars, they're couch surfing for periods of time, and then sometimes in shelter and sometimes on the streets. Not everyone that is homeless is on, sleeping on our street every single night. Um, so the problem is, is slightly larger than I think people realize. So whenever people complain that we spent $250 million on 7,000 people, I always try to point out that that is completely inaccurate because 60% of it is actually housing people you no longer see. And the remaining 100 million is actually trying to address 17,000 people on our homeless count. Um, today. So the aspect that I think I hear the most about from our constituents is those that are chronically homeless and very sick. And um, estimates range that that's between 1,300 and 3,000 people. And the answer for those folks is um, shelter with um, supportive services, either medical, um, substance abuse, mental health. And I'm really proud to have worked on building out and expanding um, South of Market's 24-hour medical shelter staffed by nurses, clinicians, and psychologists. And we just need more of it. And I've fought to get full-time nurses at all of our single adult shelters. We have to address an aspect of homelessness as a public health crisis, not just as an economic and poverty issue. It is incredibly expensive. And every year I've served on the Budget Committee and served on the Board of Supervisors, we debate endlessly about whether we should invest more resources in shelter um, because it's not the best use. We don't get the biggest bang out of our buck. But while we argue about funding more housing, in the meantime, all these people are sleeping out on the streets and their issues are not getting addressed. And I think, I think we just have to fund more shelters, as expensive as they are. And I am committed to Mayor Lee's um, directive to 1,000 more beds um, and you know they're they're currently getting built out. That commitment is being honored by the city, um, and I I just think ultimately we can't let people who are really sick um, live on the streets. Um, now the now then there's kind of the the larger segment of the homeless population um, that's not as visible and. What people don't often realize is that our fastest growing demographic in the homeless count is working families. And it's actually single mothers mm -hmm. with children and jobs. Yep. And I am incredibly sickened by the fact that, and by the way, this is not just true in San Francisco, it's yep. true in New York City and LA as well. I'm sickened by the fact that cities um, cannot figure out how to house people with jobs and children. And many, if not most of them, used to have a home in San Francisco. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, a couple of things. Uh, we have to greatly expand our rent subsidy program. Mm -hmm. It is true that money just goes back on the market. People get frustrated by that, but it does keep people in their homes. Yep. So, you know, when I started on the board, a two or $300 subsidy was enough to keep a family in their home. This was back in 2011. Yep. That does nothing. Yep. Um, we have to increase the dollar amount and greatly expand it because it is far cheaper for us to keep a family in place in their unit today mm -hmm. than to then later have them in shelter and find them permanent housing later. Um, we have to win Proposition F, right to counsel. The vast majority of tenants, I think 80 or 90% don't have an attorney um, in their eviction proceedings. Yet we also know that when tenants do have an attorney, they win most of the time. So if we can keep or tenants- at least they get a good deal. Right, if we can keep tenants in place in their home and um, 
fight back against these unfair evictions. We got to do it. And of course, um, the ordinance I worked on with the San Francisco Tenants Union and Community Tenants Association and Tenants Together, Eviction Protection 2.0 um, in 2015, you know, that has also seen, uh, a, we've seen a decline in these low fault evictions um, since then. And we have to heavily enforce on owner movement eviction. We now have a law saying that um, there must be vacancy rent control for five years post OMI and that landlords must report and prove every year that um, that their family member is truly living there. OMIs are fine if your grandmother or your child comes back from college is truly living there. I mean, I don't want to say it's fine, but it's a legitimate. It's a, it's a legitimate thing in, under it's the a, American system of private property. Yeah. Right. Um, but then let's make sure that that is actually what is happening. Um, and so we got to do greater enforcement. And one thing I've learned in my seven years on the Board of Supervisors is that the city does a terrible job enforcing our laws. Yeah. So we have sometimes we have great laws on the book. They're just not getting enforced. Um, so we have to do a better job in that arena. So I think it's a mixture of more shelters, of course, more affordable and supportive housing. That's Everyone agrees on that. Um, getting our SRO um, vacant units back online tenant protections, and right to counsel. Um, I know Marky's got some questions too. I'm not going to monopolize the whole thing, but I do want to ask you two quick things first. One is you're, you represent South Market. You talked a little earlier about the non-legal living spaces that are How do we walk that fine line oh. um, between the ghost ship problem and the fact that there are a lot of people living in places that are not up to code right now, but if you force the landlord to bring it up to code, they're going to kick the people out because they're not mm -hmm. a technically a legal sp a living space. How do you walk that line? Because it's a it's a tough one. It is a very tough one. We have an, both an unspoken policy, but also it is littered throughout our legislation, which is that. Um, keeping tenants in place in their unit is the highest priority. So a good example I give is 1049 Market, um, where um, the landlord, John Gall, um, issued eviction notices to all these tenants, um, and rightfully under the law, which was that um, these, these, uh, this building was zoned commercial, and then because they were not able to rent it out, no office wanted to be on mid-market, um, it had been illegally converted to residential yeah. use, and none of the units had light and air. Right. And, um, and so when the evictions came to us, we're like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? I mean, the landlord is rightfully evicting these tenants. It's not, you know, it's not appropriate living conditions. Um, but we also couldn't see the largest eviction since the I-Hotel happening under our watch. And these were, um, these were close to, uh, gosh, I can't remember the number, 70 um, residents that were small business owners, artists, right. you know, rainbow grocery store workers, et cetera. I mean, these are, you know, the actual heart and soul of San Francisco. Like, when we think of San Francisco, our, those residents lived in that building. <laughs> So for the first time ever, Department of Building Inspection, I did not even know they had the discretion to do this until this happened, gave a light and air exception. Mm -hmm. So we have figured out how to work creatively around our building code when we prioritize um, residents staying in their homes as their top priority. That being said, we also have to make sure that ghost, a ghost ship fire doesn't happen again. So we have to do everything that we can to make those units safer. And I do think that the building inspection and fire team going out and working with landlords on, on affordably um, making those spaces safe um, while keeping those residents in place is important. And we have not been, we've discouraged and have been working hard to make sure that no one gets evicted in this process. Shifting to the cops for a second. Um, you've been against, you're against Prop H, obviously, the taser thing. Mm -hmm. um, do you support the police commission decision 
the, the modified taser policy? I do not. You're against tasers in general? Right now, I am still against tasers being an additional tool um, for police officers for a number of reasons. And, and by the way, I'm open on this issue. Mm -hmm. I'm still willing to, I'm always willing to reconsider my position. Mm -hmm. uh, but up until now, I'm still not convinced that tasers are either necessary or a positive addition to the police force. Um, I am sympathetic. Um, I hear it particularly from female officers that they feel like this would truly help um, them feel safer in their jobs. And I want to figure out what we can do um, for officers that really, you know, are putting their lives on the line every single day. Um, but a couple of issues that I have with tasers. One, I mean, even just this year, we've had several people die via taser encounters with the police. So it is not true that we're saving lives right. via tasers. And they have ranged from older to younger. So it's not even an issue of this person was very frail, although I don't know why we were tasering a frail person. But <laughs> yeah, uh, but you know, I mean, even, you know, we saw because a very young yeah, person yeah. in Daly City die um, via a taser encounter with the police. So that's my number one issue is that it's not, it hasn't been proven to save lives. And two, you know, ultimately there's a, we have a major trust issue in our communities and not all of our communities equally feel safe when they see a police officer walk down the street. I'm fortunate to be one of the San Francisco residents that does feel safer when I see a police officer walking down the street. I'm in a very privileged position, both as a publicly elected official and as an Asian American young woman. Um, but not every resident feels that way. And I think we have a lot of work to do to um, implement fully implement the Department of Justice reforms and um, really strengthen um, the community relationships between our officers and the community before we can permit um, tasers to come into uh, the police uh, so force. Do you, would you support the idea that the activists are pushing for that we don't approve an MOU with the POA unless it includes an agreement not to force, meet, and confer on the Justice Department reforms? I, 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 sorry, yes. So not the tasers, but on the Department yes. of Justice. Yeah. I think, you know, we have to work with the POA um, in ensuring that we get some discretion and flexibility around the implementation of things that were actually uh, recommended to us by the Department of Justice. I mean, which was an independent federal agency that yeah. we asked to come so you would, if you, and provide if, recommendations. If the contract comes to you and doesn't include any agreement from the POA not to block reforms, are you going to vote against it? I have to see what the overall yeah. MOU is. I, to be honest, right? I, I don't want to uh, corner myself into a position. That's the way I lean right now. Um, but I do also have to look at the overall MOU and what the positives and the negatives are. I've been asking all the questions. Go ahead. Oh, that's okay. I just have a quick question since we're kind of late. But about arts and culture, kind of turning to arts and culture. Yeah. Um, you've done a lot through legacy business, et cetera. But yeah. in the past 10 years, we've seen an incredible rupture in the artistic community and cultural community. Most people moving to Oakland, et cetera. What is your plan? And now you've been moving out of Oakland. <laughs> right, exactly. Now you're moving to Hayward, et cetera. Yeah. Um, what would be your plan to kind of draw artists back to San Francisco and protect the artists that are here in the arts institutions, including nonprofits. Um, how would you strengthen that as mayor? Yeah, so um, on my time on the board, I did work with Supervisor John Avalos to um, fund an arts displacement task, uh, fund, sorry, not a task force, an arts displacement fund that will support um, keeping arts organizations here in San Francisco. I also worked with the arts community to greatly increase their budget for the first time in many years. Um, uh, so that we are more greatly funding through our general revenue 
um, budget um, funding for our cultural and small arts organizations. I think the far more difficult question is actually, uh, and, and then also I, I authored Proposition X um, in 2016, which was a measure to require um, replacement of PDR, production dispute repair, if any were demolished or um, taken out in the south of market and the mission. And then we then put in an additional provision saying, um, um, we would allow for some reduction in PDR if you commit to below market rate commercial rents. Because we know that just saving PDR alone doesn't mean arts moves in. You also have to have below market rate um, rents for arts to be able to afford to stay here. Uh, I think the question, though, about keeping artists in San Francisco is a much, much more difficult one. I think there's a lot we can do to protect arts organizations um, and performance spaces and making sure that we make this a vibrant city for the performance of arts. Um, what do we do to keep artists living in San Francisco? So some of it is our work that we've been following up post ship is how do we protect um, all these uh, live work commercial spaces that we know that artists reside in um, and make sure that we protect um, these artists. Um, two, you know, I've thought a lot about, you know, all of that live work space that we built in the south of market in early 2000s. You know, most of nobody, no art, very few artists are living there. Yeah, those are tech workers. Yeah, yeah. but there are business and work requirements in mm -hmm. some of those units, and I wonder if there are certain sites that we can um, work with to have a portfolio requirement mm -hmm. uh, in order to encourage um, artist residencies. Mm -hmm. Now, I think where we get hung up is what is you know, what can you submit as a portfolio? Right, no, I understand. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but it's, it's something I've been thinking about because I know that there are live work spaces actually in Oakland where in order for you to move in, you have to, you have to submit your art portfolio um, to live in those buildings. And so could we, could we uh, replicate that kind of model here? Hmm. No easy solutions. Yeah. And then um, just a quick follow up on that um, regarding kind of legacy business. Um, kind of bourgeois concern about character of the neighborhood. Um, mm -hmm. So many small businesses that people think are their heart and soul in their neighborhood are being pushed out, you know, forced out because of either property exchange or you know skyrocketing rents, etc. Um, how? What would you tell some of these businesses if they came to you for help or some of the neighborhoods? How would you strengthen maybe the uh, comforts they can have coming to you? Yeah, you know, so uh, my mom was a small business owner. She was a shopkeeper. Um, she, you know, she ran a business where she was a sole employee. And sometimes when she, when the business was doing better, she would hire an assistant. So I saw the work that my mom did in a small business, and I saw the challenges. I saw how hard it was. And, and by the way, you know, my mom had been held up even at gunpoint um, several times. And you know, she, she still, you know, kind of lives with that trauma. Um, of not knowing if she was going to see her kids that home that night. So I, I feel a lot of sympathy or empathy for our small business owners because I think the work is incredibly tough and we know that their margins of profit are razor slim. And so they depend upon doing well every single month and even one down month um, can greatly impact their longevity into the future. And we've been seeing this throughout the South of Market actually that um, businesses that um, start to see lower revenue because of construction and development around their business just can't sustain past the 18 months or two years because they just can't sustain that much deficit every single year because they were already just making above what they needed um, at cost um, to stay alive um, in our neighborhoods. And I think what has been 
one of the most disappointing outcomes of this economic boom um, in San Francisco is that it has not it has not helped small businesses. It has only hurt small businesses because the the argument. The rents have gone up, and also people are not shopping or eating at brick and mortar. That's the other issue. I, 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 by the way, I do not know this to be true. This is just what I hear from yeah. business owners: is that they're not seeing um, people come and dine at their restaurants, even though there's you know 20 new condo units next yeah. to them, and they're so excited. Actually, initially they they were the right. biggest supporters of the mid-market yes. tax exclusion yeah. of new construction because they thought that these were new residents, new workers that would um, patronize their business, and that's that quote trickle down economics did not happen because they go to work at Google where they get breakfast lunch and dinner and at Twitter there's a supermarket right underneath them so they never have to leave the building yeah yeah and and actually the the businesses that refuse to provide these additional services to their employees um, have been the biggest boon to our small businesses yeah. so Yammer for example that moved in downstairs from Twitter didn't provide as many food amenities and so um, I remember the coffee shop down the street was really disappointed when Twitter moved in but then when Yammer moved in they, he hired two more employees yeah. so there's a lot our private sector can do to small support our small businesses and I find that the tech companies that provide less amenities the small businesses in the areas um, right, do course. better um, so, uh, you know, small businesses should be the backbone of our economy, and we know in a recession, and we will see another recession, they're the ones that keep our economy going. They're the only ones hiring. They're the only ones um, producing revenue. And so I also think it's really important for progressives to embrace the small business yeah. community, too, and make sure that we are adequately supporting them, streamlining permits, um, streamlining city services and support, whether it's PUC, public works, graffiti removal, um, street cleaning, um, and also um, making making sure that we're supporting them through lengthy construction projects like Central Subway. Yep. Well, Jan, is that okay? Yeah. I'm going to turn this.